Well, this, this week I decided that I needed to overhaul my calendar. Any of you who've launched a new venture, we've got entrepreneurs in the church, know that you know, when you're building something from scratch, everything has to, been, to be built. There's no precedent. There's no existing infrastructure. You're starting from scratch. And so for me, now 21, 22 weeks into Cornerstone officially meeting as a church, uh, I have this sense of frenzy. It's very easy to be busy. It's very easy to be occupied with lots of tasks, but I want to make progress. I want to have a sense that we're, we're moving things forward. I'm stewarding the stuff that I'm responsible to, and I need to calendar my priorities. And so uh, Todd, uh, and hopefully you got to hear Todd's sermon last week, which was really good. Um, Todd and I met together. Todd gets me. We've got like 20,000 hours together in the last seven or eight years. He gets me. He's a really good coach. And so Todd and I sat down with a stack of post-it notes and a whiteboard, and I wrote down like all of the important tasks that I need to do. And, and we were working on the schedule and patching things all together, and Todd was recommending this one thing that he's heard me say I need to do time after time after time, which I really didn't want to do, which was exercise. And do you know why? It's because exercise is awful. And any of you people who love exercise, I don't understand why you would do that. Rob, I don't know why you would do that to yourself. It's a horrible, horrible thing. I ran cross-country in, in high school and coached a little in college, and I look back and think, that was a horrible choice. I could have, I could have not run in the time I spent running. But, you know, I want to be alive for a long time, and I have this wife that I care about and these children, and stress, you know, piles up in my body, and I need to let it out. And so we found a couple of key times to exercise. And when I exercise, when I go to the Y, generally, like, I, the most important thing is I put on, like, a good playlist. And, and uh, then I'll lift a little bit. I'll do the rowing machine. Generally, like, pilfer around for an hour until, like, I've listened to enough music. And I think, hey, great, I exercise today. And Todd is a big CrossFit guy. And Todd said, if you're not exercising with others, you're basically not doing anything. So... I looked on the website for the why, and I was looking at the course listings for Monday of last week, and there was one particular class that fit my time schedule, and I thought, okay, it's 25 minutes, maybe it'll work. I don't remember what it was called, conditioning together or something, and when I went in, they had this tool called a Viper. Does anyone know what a Viper is? It's horrible. It's this, it's this cylinder with grips in it, and it's weighted, and you do these exercises through the course with the Viper, and um, I thought, oh, this is going to be awful. And I had, but I really had two main fears in going to the class. One, I was very confident I was going to make a fool of myself in front of everyone else. Everyone will, like, know the routine, and I'm going to be a dummy. And the other thing was, I'm probably going to die. And Emily knows the first time I exercise after having not exercised for a long time, it's usually pretty bad. I spend a fair amount of like the evening sitting next to the toilet expecting to throw up. It's not good. So I went to the class and I just determined, okay, I'm going to get through this because I told Todd I would and he's going to give me grief if I don't. So I, I'm, I just decided there were 10 other people in the class. I'm going to pretend that they're not there and there's just the instructor and me. And what was relieving was like, it's not like you're doing freestyle. There's a, there's a set schedule for the moves you can do and the routine. And if you just watch the instructor, uh, you're going to be able to get through it. You're going to survive. You just imitate the moves. You don't need to like have any originality or self-expression. And in a similar way, it's like I'm trying to prioritize being well. 
Uh, we want to be well as a church. Uh, we want to be healthy as a church, and we have priorities. We have a vision, a sense of calling, like who we want to be, and we're figuring out what this means. The, the way we've expressed it is that we want to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Uh, we're hardwired as Americans to be individualistic. We have to learn to be a community, to develop an imagination of us-ness. Uh, we're shaped by all kinds of narratives, by the narrative of wealth accumulation, of success, of family, of, of having nice stuff, or whatever it is for you. And, our, and our, the narratives that shape us show up in many different ways. We want to have a cross-shaped kind of life and do that together, to be shaped by the life of Jesus. And we believe this has an outward effect. It's renewal, the renewal of our hearts, the renewal of our families, of our neighborhoods, of our cities, of our broken institutions, of our country, of the nations of the world. God's heart is for the healing of the nations. And so our hope as a church is we submit ourselves together to the way of Jesus that will participate in the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things that will ultimately come at Christ's return. But luckily, like we acknowledge we don't have to freestyle. We don't have to figure out the steps of how to do this on our own. In fact, we find we're, we're not the first ones at the scene. We're living into the story that began 2,000 years ago uh, with the birth of the church. And Jesus had walked with these 12 men, and the 12 gathered with 120 others. And on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension, the Spirit fell, and they were empowered and anointed to proclaim this, to live into this gospel-shaped community, this renewing story together. And the pressure is not on us 2,000 years later to invent and innovate what it means to be church. We're living into the steps. We're doing what, what the author of Hebrews said. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's like fixing my eyes on the instructor and forgetting that everyone else is there. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of this whole story and who's making it right. And luckily, after, after looking at Jesus, we get to look to our teachers, the early church, the scriptures, to learn what it looks like for regular people to, to work out these steps in the real world and in life. We don't have to innovate but we look to the church, we look to God's story to figure out the rule and the standard and the guide, the invitation for us to imitate, to learn the steps of how to be a church. And so this is, this, we're now six weeks into looking at the book of Acts, which perhaps you've read before, or perhaps you're hearing it for the first time. And this morning, in, in the passage that Bill read, we're going to look at, at three key insights from the text. This is not stuff that I'm inventing. This is three key insights from the text. Both of the one we just read, but we're also going to zoom out and see in the first four chapters that we're studying, like God's doing some stuff. There's something that we can learn about how to be the church today in 21st century Tulsa, Oklahoma with these people in this room. There's some insights for us. So a bill started and the passage we were looking at begins with verse 23. If you have a Bible, you can just stay open to look at what we're reading through. And verse 23 said, upon their release, which tells us we're in the middle of a story. Upon their release, the, the they is Peter and John, who were two of Jesus' original disciples. They've been imprisoned overnight, and we're going to tell the story of what had happened. At the beginning of Acts chapter 3, Bill, Bill, <laughs> Bill and John, Peter and John, Bill, you could have been there too, or a famous Bill, uh, Peter and John were walking in the temple at the hour of prayer. They went in to pray. And as they're walking in, uh, knowing that it was a place of a lot of foot traffic, there was this lame man who had been lame from birth. He was 40 years old, asking for money. And he looks at Peter, or he hollers at Peter and John, hey, do you have any money for me? 
And Peter and John looked at the guy, made eye contact with him, and then said those words to him that are pretty famous. And maybe you like sang it in a Sunday school song as a little kid. Peter said to him, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. The guy gets up unbelievably, and, and he believes their words, and he, he walks. And he goes running in circles, and he's freaking out and praising God, and the people see what has happened, and there's a great commotion. And they're in the temple, and there's this, I mean, huge crowd would have been there, and they're gathering all around. They're asking Peter and John, how on earth did this happen? And they're given an opportunity to explain the story, and they tell the gospel. And being at the temple, the, the temple guards are noticing the commotion, and the temple police come, and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, who are the rulers of the temple, come, and they don't like the commotion, and so they arrest Peter and John. They arrest Peter and John, they put them in jail overnight, and the next day they bring them to trial. And I noticed something this week reading the text that I've never seen before, that when Peter and John are taken out of jail and they're brought to trial, they stand before Annas and Caiaphas. Which those names, if, if you know the story of the Gospels, should found, sound familiar to us. They're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus, before He was crucified, was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas came and betrayed Him. The guards came and arrested Him, and they took Him in front of Annas, and then they took Him in front of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Peter and John were now standing in front of the people who had sentenced Jesus to death who are responsible for sending Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. Weeks before, Peter was standing in the courtyard of Caiaphas following Jesus at a distance when a young girl came up to him and said, you're not one of his followers, are you? And to this little girl who was not a source of meaningful intimidation, he said, no, I don't know the guy. And now Peter, who had denied him in front of this little girl, was standing in front of, in front of the leader, in front of Caiaphas and Annas, and was boldly telling the truth. And he was fairly confrontational. He said, you're wondering how we healed this guy. Well, we did it in the name of Jesus, whom you killed, but whom God raised to life. And they couldn't uh, argue with the miracle because everyone had known this guy. And from their release at that moment when they'd confronted the leaders, they go back to the church. And, and, but before we move on, I, I want to just pause and appreciate that what had just happened was not something that Jesus would have been surprised by. In fact, what happened with Peter and John in this scene was something that he predicted. It was in the Gospels. This is Luke 12, 11 and 12. Jesus had said to the disciples, look, when you're brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you're going to defend yourselves or what you'll say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So Jesus told them this was going to happen, and He told them when it happened, when they were arrested and called to account, that He was going to give them the words to say, and here it happened. Which leads us to the first key insight that we're talking about this morning. The first key insight is what God has called us to do, God equips us to do, which means you're not on the hook to do something that God is not already working to enable you to do. What God has called you to do, He's equipped you to do. It's not on us to manufacture our calling, to generate our own wisdom. We've got to work hard. We've got to discipline ourselves. We've got to pray. We've got to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's ultimately not on us to make this happen. What God has called you to do in your life, God will equip you to do to the end. Upon getting released, they're released. Peter and John go back to the church. 
And this is the text that we've just read. And what's the first thing they do? What did you notice as Bill read that? As you, maybe you look at your scripture now. What did they do? They prayed. They prayed. They pulled out the Psalms and say, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They went back to the scriptures to name their own persecution and suffering and to make sense of it. They went to the scriptures and then they prayed from their own hearts and, and pretty remarkable prayer. This is Acts 4, uh, 29 through 30. This is what they said. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your servant, Jesus. Consider their threats, but enable us to be courageous. Empower us to be courageous and heal. Now, here's what's so incredibly healthy about the prayer that they've just prayed, this one right here from 29 and 30, is if, if I were, well, it's got great boundaries. I said, okay, Lord, you deal with those people, but help us to do our thing. You deal with the, the stuff that we can't control, but give us the courage and the grit and the insight to do the stuff that you've called us to do. It's amazing. Consider their threats, but help us to be courageous. And I think if I were in their situation, what would I be praying? Or if you were in their situation, you've been arrested, you're standing on trial, uh, and then you get released, what would you be praying? Well, I'd be praying, well, Lord, uh, get them back for this. Uh, comfort me, because that was scary. I pray that you would put on uh, new members of the Jewish ruling council who are favorable toward Christians. Um, get them in trouble for this. Basically, you deal with them, but make me feel better. Change the situation, but don't make it happen so that I have to actually grow through this, in short. Uh, which is most of our prayers. This sucks. Could you help me feel better about not being able to deal with it? And there's such healthy boundaries in there, and it's like the serenity prayer. God, grant me the grace to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God, I can't deal with them, so you do it, but help me to be responsible. Help me to be courageous in my situation, which is brilliant. Rather than asking the situation to change, they asked God to change them, which necessitated growth. There's a story of a football coach who had a quarterback who threw really, really hard. And the wide receivers came to the coach and said, would you get him to soften up just a little bit? And the coach, rather than going to the QB and saying, well, the wide, re wide receivers are complaining, you're hurting their hands a little bit. He said, I want you to throw it even harder. And we're going to get wide receivers who can catch it. Rather than succumbing to the weakness of the wide receiver, the coach wanted to raise the strength of the entire team. They were adapting to strength. We like doing the opposite. We like asking God to make it so we don't need to grow, but the church did the opposite. You deal with them, but make us stronger. Help us to be stronger. Help us to rise to the challenge. Rather than making life easier, God wants to make His people stronger, which leads to our second key insight here. Well, this is from, this is James, the brother of Jesus. James said this. He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, not just like spiritual ones, the really apparently religious ones, when you face trials of many kinds, call it joy. Yes. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, 
Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. It may be that God is disinterested in answering our prayers because if He answered our prayers, we'd be immature. If we answered our prayers, we wouldn't grow strong, and God desires to give us the gift of maturity. So James, the brother of Jesus, says, if you're in that situation where strength is required, where greater courage is required than you think you can muster up, call it joy when you face any of these kind of trials because the testing of your faith is going to give you the gift of endurance, of perseverance, and let it do its job because it wants to make you strong. You'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing if you let it do its thing. And this is our second key insight. That God leverages opposition and difficulty to make us strong. God doesn't cause all of these things, but God leverages difficulty and opposition to make us strong. The third key insight, I had to break form a little bit, um, and I'm going to have to walk through the text a bit to get it, but this was the one that really stood out to me as I think about where we are as a church. And I called it the compounding interest of doing the next right thing. The compounding interest of doing the next right thing. I remember at, at ORU, I took personal financial planning with Dr. Rennie Martin and learned about Roth IRAs. And Dr. Rennie Martin was saying, if you put just a couple hundred bucks a month uh, into a Roth IRA when you're 22, even if you just did it from the time you're 22 to 30 or 35, by the time you reach a certain age, you're going to have a really unbelievably large sum of money. I thought, that sounds like a good idea. I like compounding interest when it works in my favor. <laughs> Here we have the similar principle, the compounding interest of doing the next right thing. As a result of this experience that Peter and John had where they healed this guy and then they got to explain the deal, the text tells us at the beginning of Acts chapter 4 that that several thousand people were added to the family of faith. In fact, it says there were 5,000 men who were now following Jesus. 5,000 men was referring to heads of household. So in all likelihood, there are 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 people who are now following Jesus as a result of of the work of the early church, which is pretty remarkable when you think about how only weeks before the day of Pentecost, there were 120 of them. And then when Peter preached, there were 3,000 of them, and then there were 5,000, maybe upwards of 8, 9, 10,000 people. How on earth did that happen? It's the principle the compounding interest of doing the next right thing. There's a clear pattern in Acts, the book of Acts so far, from the beginning until where we are, that gives us a clue about how this happens. It wasn't that the church was together on the day of Pentecost and they thought, we need to call in a consultant who can help us experience this dynamic growth. And it wasn't like after the church got together, after being threatened, they like, we need to get a PR specialist who can make sure, like, we get some favorables among the people that hate us. They didn't do anything like that, which is what we typically do, American Christians, when we want the church to grow. They did something very different. You go back to Acts chapter 1, the disciples obey Jesus. He says, after his, after his ascension, he says, go wait in an upper room and the Spirit's going to fall. And so they go and they do what he says. They pray. They're waiting in the upper room, 120 of them every day, praying, praying, and waiting. Men, women, young, old, all of them there waiting. And on the day of Pentecost, the Scripture says, suddenly a sound like a rushing mighty wind came in. A tongue of fire rested on each of them. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of a sudden, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued in this attitude of prayer. 
They'd been praying and waiting and praying and waiting on the day of Pentecost, praying, and God moved. And suddenly, because they were speaking in tongues, there was such a commotion that people were like hollering at them, are you guys drunk already? It's only nine in the morning. And Peter was given an opportunity to explain what the deal was. He said, no, we're not drunk. It's too early for that. He said, no, this is what's happening is what God promised through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. Young and old, rich and poor, man and woman, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And this is what happened. And then 3,000 were added to their number because of the opportunity that Peter had taken. What did they do immediately after that? They went right back to being the church. They were praying. They were studying the scriptures. They were sharing meals. They weren't doing strategic planning. They weren't figuring out how to get like flyers on every door. They were praying and they were waiting. They were praying and they were waiting. Peter and John went to the temple to pray and they were given an opportunity. Here's this man who's lame from birth and he's asking for help. They, they see the opportunity and they take it. That opportunity leads to another opportunity where the crowds are asking, how on earth did you do that? That opportunity led to another opportunity where they're called before the ruling council and they give an account of the gospel. And 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 people suddenly believe the good news about Jesus. And what do they do? They go right back to praying. Prayer, opportunity. Prayer, opportunity, 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 prayer. And there's this circle the circuit that was working. They were not manufacturing this stuff. In fact, they couldn't if they had tried to. They were, they were remaining in Christ. They were praying. They were seeking God. And when those opportunities came, they took them. And the, the, the opportunities beget more opportunities until suddenly, within weeks of its start, the church is at eight, nine, ten thousand people. It's the compounding interest of doing the next right thing. But the thing that kills me, which I think is so great, is what got them in trouble in the first place was healing. They healed this guy, and then they got in trouble. They got in trouble. They got opportunity, and they followed it, and they go back, and they're praying after their first meaningful kind of resistance, after Peter and John stood in front of Annas and Caiaphas, who had sentenced their master to death by crucifixion, and their prayer was what? Do it again. That was awesome. He prayed, do it again. They'd been addicted to the thrill of keeping in step with the Spirit. They said, I don't care what it costs us. We want that to happen again. Stretch out your hand. Perform wonders. Whatever you got, bring it. It's going to give us a chance to give witness to who Jesus is. Do it again. There's prayer, opportunity, prayer, opportunity, prayer, and the circuit feeds on itself. And it could be that we miss out on the opportunities that God's given us. And maybe the church in America has done it chronically for years, and perhaps that's why we feel a sense of powerlessness, like the electricity has gone out, like we've lost our spark. Maybe we don't experience the power of God because we've missed the opportunities He's given us. And maybe we miss the opportunities He's given us because our life as a church and community is not deeply nourished in prayer. Maybe our church is not deeply nourished in prayer because we're not remaining in Jesus. We're not seeking Jesus. We could try to grow Cornerstone or grow another church to, to eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 in vain. 
And some, and some pastors work so hard to gain an identity for themselves by building something great. We're operating out of the identity that we've been given as sons and daughters of God. We're not doing this to earn anything. We're doing this out of the thrill of keeping in step with what God's doing and making all things new. Prayer, opportunity, prayer, opportunity. The next right thing for us is all we've got to worry about. And the next right thing is always to be attached to Jesus, to do the first part of that cycle of prayer prayer, of prayer. That's why I'm I'm kind of beating a drum. I'm just learning to pray. I struggle to pray. I really do. But this this is it for us. If we remain in Him as He remains in us, we'll bear fruit, we'll flourish. There's not flourishing apart from that. But then it's to pay attention to the opportunities. And there are going to come those moments, particularly as we seek God together, where we know unmistakably that God is giving us an opportunity. I don't know what it's going to be, We have those moments where we're going to have a chance to step out in faith together and do something great. And I want us to be ready, long for us to be ready for those opportune moments because we've sought God together. I'd love to become addicts together of the thrill of keeping in step with the Spirit of God so that we could pray with the church, having seen the great things He's done. Oh, that was awesome. Do it again. And so I love the prayer of Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3.2. It's the prayer of someone who's heard of all that God's done and just wants to experience it for himself. He said, Lord, I've heard of your fame, all that great stuff you've done. I stand in awe of your deeds, but repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And so I'd ask you, what's the next right thing for you? For all of us, it's to seek Christ. For all of us, it's to remain in Jesus. But for you particularly, in your family, with your friends, in your work, with your passion, with your, your distinct set of gifts, there's a next right thing for you. And you may know, dang it, I have to do it now. But if you can name it, when there are those little moments where you think, maybe I should do it immediately. Just do it without thinking. Some of the greatest joy and growth of my life is when I've freaked myself out by doing stuff and wondering if it was God. And sometimes I really bombed. Uh, lots of times. But if we long to see that kind of renewal and awakening, it's, it's the compounding interest of doing the next right thing. And as a community, we want to do the next right thing together. Prayer, opportunity. Prayer, opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's, it's so hard as doers to confuse law and gospel. It's easier to, for us to like tell each other what to do than to tell each other, like, who to be, to live into our relationship with you. And so I just thank you that apart from any good or horrible thing we do, you extend grace to us. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's not about you so no one can brag. But at the same time, we want to be doers of the Word, as James said, not just hearers and deceive ourselves. We don't want to just make ourselves feel good by coming to church. We want to be obedient students and servants and apprentices of yours. So give us the courage to trust that you're going to equip us to do what you've called us to do. Help us to, help us to do the next right thing and participate in the life and the energy of just keeping in step with the Spirit. We want to be that kind of people together. Help us. Give us insight. Give us discernment. Give us mindfulness to sense where it is that you're leading us individually and where there are those opportunities where we can act in faith and courage together. And we pray, Lord Jesus, what you've done in the past, you'll do today. 
I don't want to just hear these stories all of my life and read them and wonder why they happened to someone else and not to us. We've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, but repeat them in our day. Do it among us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.